Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Shipping this month will be Echoes Shades by Peter Zaberski, and I'll be previewing that book on the Real Photo Show Instagram TV and YouTube channel, uh, so check that out. And check out charcoalbookclub.com to become a member. Welcome to the Real Photo Show series on teaching photography. Uh, before we get started today with my guest, Carrie Bembo, I just want to mention that I am part of a portfolio review called MFA Photography Reviews, and we are looking for undergraduate and graduate students who graduated <laughs> in 2020 and 2021 uh, to apply for this free opportunity to be part of a printed publication, uh, to have their work shown at my JKC gallery, uh, to possibly uh, receive a large format Fujifilm GFX 100S camera. There'll be one artist selected for that through a random lottery drawing. Uh, and everyone who submits, regardless if they're chosen to be in the publication or the show, will be included in a large free downloadable PDF uh, that will be hosted on the website. So check out mfaphotographyreviews.com. The deadline is coming. It's June 15th, and it's completely free. Did I mention that? So my guest today is Carrie Bembo. Carrie is a writer, editor, and photographer based in Greenfield, Indiana. After graduating with a BFA in photography from Ball State University, he worked in higher education publishing, and that's why I invited Carrie for the teaching series, for a dozen years before changing careers. He and his wife Jody run the family business, an independent movie theater, and are proud parents of five wonderful young adults. Uh, Carrie mentions that his business had to be put on hold during the pandemic, but uh, we don't actually get into the fact that it's a movie theater, so um, let's save that for another show. His articles, interviews, and book reviews have been published in a number of online and print magazines, and his photography has been widely exhibited. Carrie is a staff writer for F-Stop Magazine, a contributor to Yield Magazine, and his writing has been featured in Lens Culture, Vantage, Fujifeed, Photo Machina, and Art Narratives. He is the publisher and editor of Wabneb Magazine. And we are going to reminisce a little bit about our experiences in the textbook uh, publishing world and the changes that occurred in publishing and stock photography that came about almost simultaneously with the introduction of digital photography in the classroom. Uh, we talk about Carrie's own photography, his desire to promote work from those underrepresented in the photo world, and we talk about the kind of work we might be seeing in the coming years that is a result of the psychological and emotional toll the pandemic has taken from us. So I've linked to Carrie's sites uh, in the show notes. And if you don't know who Carrie Bembo is, uh, you should check out his work, especially the writing he does for F-Stop Magazine and his own Wabneb Magazine. Uh, Carrie's a really thoughtful person when it comes to writing about photography. And even though Carrie is not directly involved in photographic education, I think his experience with textbooks and the publishing world and the stock photography world is relevant to what happened to the way we teach photography in the classroom. And I think you could make the case that his writing and thoughts about photography are at the very least reflective of what we're talking about in the classroom with our students. And if you're reading any of the publications that Carrie is published in, then he's probably influential in terms of what you're talking about in the classroom. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Mm -hmm.
Welcome, Kerry Bembo. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot. Yeah. You're out in uh, Indiana? That's right. We're uh, located in Greenfield. Uh, that's just east of Indianapolis, about uh, 15 miles or so. Yep. So um, I I kind of got to know you through really social media and and the, and your writing, the work you do. You're a, a regular contributor to F-Stop magazine, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm a staff writer for F-Stop. And I've seen you in, appear in Lens Culture. Yep, I've written there. Uh, there's a couple other publications uh, that they've either asked me to contribute to or I had projects that fit their needs and I've, I've, I've fit in there as well. The um, photo publication that's out of the uh, Snight Museum at uh, Notre Dame University, uh, Yield magazine, uh, I've written for a number of times and done, done some interviews with curators and, uh, and ours. And so that, that's one of the other more, more or less regular uh, avenues I have for writing. Yeah. And, and for those of you listening who are wondering how this fits into the teaching series <laughs> that I'm doing, <laughs> uh, I discovered uh, pretty recently that Carrie and I have some similar experiences uh, with education and textbooks, uh, and, I, and we're going to get to that. But uh, I thought um, you know we should give uh, folks a, a little bit more on your on your background. Uh, how did you get into uh, writing? Because you're also a photographer, right? And and we'll talk a little bit about that. And how did writing uh, become such a an important part of what you do? And and is, do you consider that primary in terms of your creativity, or is it is it shared? Is it equal? I'd say it's shared, um, I, although. Uh, what I generate for uh, my photographic projects is um, is not as out there as far as what people would probably see more often or read more often. The writing has become uh, something that as I've gotten to my point in my career and my life and my experience with photography, it started to take hold and be this great way to express a sense of community that I thought I could help share with others um, and in through looking at other people's work, interpreting it through what I know, my life experience, my experience as a photographer and coming up with something then that is how folks can relate basically across things that they either have in common or don't have in common and the writing is that bridge between the two sometimes. And the life experiences that people have may not be as apparent uh, at first glance when they see a photo book or uh, someone's group of, of images and I hope that in what I'm doing with my writing that I can help, um, help kind of form that uh, greater sense of community. I think that's very similar to someone like me and, and, and many others who we also photograph and make photographs and actually I've, you know, I've been photographing for many, many years now and doing something like this was about trying to find different ways to keep community, uh, you know, a sense of community going mm -hmm. to, you know, when, when you leave school and you, you had that great community of people that you could show your work to all the time, <laughs> you, uh, oh, yeah. you have to keep figuring out ways that you can do things like that. And, and, you know, for me, when it was so, uh, sort of all pre-internet, pre-social media, it was just a group of friends hanging out in an apartment, you know, mm -hmm. uh, showing work. And I find with my students, it's even more difficult for them to keep that going with uh, their lives. Uh, my students in particular, um, you know, work a lot and they they just don't have as many opportunities. Um, and they're used to being on social media. And so that is a platform that they're more, uh, that they use uh, more easily. But sure. um, in terms of your writing, I think when I when I look at your writing, it's mostly, I and tell, you correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it is mostly interviews and some reviews. Right. Yeah. And um, as opposed to 
trends and topics uh, uh, or news or things like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I tend to avoid any talk about uh, gear or tech or which kit is now the new thing that is. is but, but even cultural or social trends. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. that shows up in reviews, that shows up in interviews. Right. But it, but you're not writing broad pieces on trends, right? Not broadly, no. Unless it's something that fits into the the broader theme that someone brings to a, a photo book, for example, and how it addresses gun violence, or how it addresses um, people of color, or how it addresses you know certain aspects of what that person's project uh, really speaks to, and that then gives me a chance to not only. Uh, describe that, relate it, uh, and 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 sometimes judge it based on uh, that's you know I figure that's my role uh, as a writer to describe something, to judge it, uh, and relate it then to the reader for something that's broader and bring in other aspects, not only from what my life experience is, but other things that become uh, become apparent through reading the work, interpreting it, looking at the at the photographs themselves, and and drawing those connections. Was that something you were naturally drawn to, or was that some Something where an editor or, you know, you know, gave you some feedback and thought, you know, this is where you should be. This is what you should be doing. Um, I've always been the kind of person who has just stayed curious. Uh, even as an undergrad student, uh, when I attended Ball State University, there were visiting artists. There were some people that did just a lecture in the big lecture hall and, and they could talk, uh, talk to folks. And um, there's always the section at the end where the person, uh, the faculty sponsor says, do we have any questions for, you know, for our guests? And it's crickets, you know. Um, and I was always the person who <laughs> That's true. Would, like, you know, would, would stand up and say, I've got a question. Or, you know, ask, uh, ask the, the printmaking. There was a printmaker uh, named David Dreisbach who came and did a couple days, talked with folks. They worked on a print. They did some intaglio printing. And uh, you could work elbow to elbow with this visiting artist and, and gain experience with that aspect. I also studied some printmaking. I loved it. And, and I had the chance to stand across the table from him and ask him, why did you print? Why did, why did you pick printmaking? Why is it that you do what you do, basically? Which uh, was related back to me after the fact um, through my professors. They said, you know, he, he commented on that later uh, that evening when we had dinner. And, you know, he said that's something that not many people would tend to think to ask him. It's just staying curious and thinking to ask things. It's, it's, that's the aspect of, of what then I think I was finally able to recognize I could apply in writing to what I've been looking at for you know, decades of, of having studied photography and always, always thinking about photography and, and how it relates to where I fit in the world. And being able to, to do that in writing and, and relate to where other people come from, ask them questions in interviews, and draw out what uh, what they're thinking about, and and that's that's proven to be um, one of my strengths. Did uh, Ball State have a a, a large journalism program, a, a college newspaper? Did you ever get involved in that? I, I didn't at the at the high, uh, college level. Uh, in high school, I um, I shot photos for uh, the yearbook and the newspaper. Uh, <laughs> after I was first introduced to, to, to photography, and uh, and like many people, uh, you know, the, your parents give you a camera, and and it was off to the races. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I went into college thinking I might study photojournalism because Ball State, um, as a liberal arts college, does have a lot of strengths with their education program for 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 teachers and you know getting uh, education uh, degrees. But journalism and the fine arts uh, and their architecture program is top notch. 
But I went in just undecided and had a couple of classes in the photojournalism department. And after two or three classes, and we got to a point where I asked the professor, here I go asking questions again, <laughs> when, are, when are we going to think about what we're shooting and apply it to the concepts of what we're trying to say with it? And I was told, well, we don't do that. Oh, now, wow. <laughs> that's, that's basic. You know, he's right. dealing with, you know, 30 kids in yeah. the classroom. And, and, you know, I'm just the pesky one who's, who's not... Um, <laughs> Who's not? Uh, He's thinking, oh God, please stop bugging me. Following the syllabus, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, good or bad, I see that as a very um, a positive point, turning point in in my path for for photography because that was it. Um, I declared myself a fine art major and and I studied photography and, and got a bachelor's of fine arts, you know, in photography. But recognizing fully that other people accomplished in photojournalism are, are equally as talented and, and expressive and say as many things as possible with, with their work, that just wasn't where I felt drawn to early in my education career. Hmm. Um, after you, and, and we'll, we'll get to um, the publishing, but mm -hmm. uh, how, how long after Ball State do you start uh, Wabneb Magazine, which is your... <laughs> Last name backwards. Right, yeah. The, <laughs> um, yeah, Wabneb is, is something that was uh, always just uh, goofing around with kids I grew up with. We'd you know, call each other by our last names backwards. But um, that's something more recent. <laughs> that's within the last uh, six, oh, wow. seven years that I've done that as far as uh, sharing other people's work, writing about it, highlighting and featuring things. That, that, that comes much, much later after the publishing career. Oh, okay. Are you, are you thinking that will be your primary sort of output sometime down the road or you know are you looking for that to you know be a um a, a, a magazine that that rivals the mag the the online magazines that you work for <laughs> uh you know one can always hope uh, that's the case uh, <laughs> it tends to be more of the it's it's more the side hustle of what um what has started mm -hmm. me into writing getting my work out there pitching stories uh, and getting uh, getting involved writing for, with several different authors and 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 getting getting the great uh, opportunity I have to write for F Stop Magazine. So um, some things um, are avenues for people that don't fit that model, or I know that are um, somebody that I always like to help uh, advance. I know what it was like coming out of uh, college, uh, having a portfolio in your hand, and and you know asking somebody, hey, can you look at this? Um, hey, mm -hmm. I would like a shot to get this in front of more people. And I try to take that into consideration with writing uh, and pitching stories, both for like F-Stop or writing for um, a few other folks. And knowing for myself, you know, I will absolutely put this up on my own site, my own magazine, and, and advance this as much as I can. And I'll see if other people are interested as well, as well. And do you see that also as a place for other writers to contribute to as well? That's always been an option. I've had mm -hmm. uh, several other people contribute uh, over the lifetime of, of Wabneb, uh, and that, that's been good. Um, so I, I tend to write and drive most of the content on there, but I have a couple of other guest writers who have uh, pitched ideas to me and I've, and I've run with, some I haven't, but um, yeah, when it fits <laughs> and works well, um, and it's a it's a great consideration. I'll do it. So when you after you leave uh, Ball State, is that that's when you get into um, publishing? Yes, the education publishing. Uh, but you're you're also working at doing your own photography the whole time. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was. Uh, I humbly started out in publishing by working in a desktop publisher. This was, you know, nineteen ninety four, ninety five. We it was a coupon magazine. That's uh, that. Oh that, wow! You know, so if you get your pizza coupons and you get your your tire ads, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. It's a, it, it was yeah. a monthly you know publication. But I cut my teeth on doing page layout, page design. By no means was I a graphic designer. I was it was Quark more back then? Artist. I was working things out in Quark Express. We were, yeah. we were, you know. But that led to scanning and color correction. That led right. to using stock photos that we put on covers and uh, and the clients would, would purchase for. So, um, you know, that in the early days of my exposure to working with artists and stock photo agencies like FPG, uh, like Photodisc, in the early years of when that was Here's what people could draw from and use uh, and, and pay royalties to for, for their use. Uh, and that, that led into working for uh, a higher education publisher. Yeah. So about when is that, if you don't mind saying? Oh, sure. Um, well, that's like 1996, 97 right. um, that I uh, joined Southwestern College Publishing, uh, which at that time was part of uh, Thompson Publishing or International Thompson Publishing which yeah. then came, became Thompson Learning uh, and, uh, and eventually, and, and now is in Cengage Learning is the name of that corporation. After right. many, many changes and mergers <laughs> and acquisitions and divestitures. Yeah, it, yeah. That's, that's the path though. But Yep. And, and so, yeah, that's, um, that's what I learned about you pretty recently. And I, I started earlier, I, um, I started working at a, a science stock photo agency, Fundamental Photographs, in the late 1980s, uh, 87 about. And... We our clients were Prentice Hall and McGraw Hill and 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 so many others and which many many just you know all fell under the umbrella of Pearson and McGraw and I can't even think of any others right now. <laughs> we had some titles that went to Harcourt. Uh, yeah, Harcourt Brace. And, uh, Harcourt yep. Brace, and um, then we got them back later when mm -hmm. uh, there was you know uh, they made sure that nobody had a monopoly on all the science books right. or something. Yeah. So we had, we had these titles, we called the boomerang titles cause we, 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 we gave them away and then they came back and, um, but yeah, that's the ever changing flow of, of, yeah. of, of uh, higher ed publishing, isn't it? But even through the, I'd say the, the mid nineties there, it was still a viable option to think that you, you could actually do stock photography and, and make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, if, especially if you had a specialty, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, travel photography was huge and it was huge as stock photography for a long time, but then, it became so ubiquitous, you know, everyone, everyone who traveled just took photos with their phones and took photos with, you know, that, you know, it, it's really flattened out that I think that market. And then, you know, we'll talk about all the, the mergers and every <laughs> acquisitions mm -hmm. and how everybody's rates went way down uh, very quickly. Oh, sure. It, it became this, um, my start in, in working with, uh, with people when I was, uh, I was a photo manager, which I oversaw the photo programs for all the, the textbooks that we handled. Um, and they were largely based on business and marketing communications and, um, and small business management. That was the niche for, for that publisher that I worked mm -hmm. with. Um, and yeah, you had, you had your person who did tabletop shots and you know that if right. they did something and they, you needed a shot of a certain product, they would do that and churn it out and you could get the transparencies and within a week and, and, you know, scan them, have them scanned and all, all good. And you had the broader agencies that, um, that had broad topics and it slowly changed where people started getting gobbled up by the, the bigger 
agencies like Corbis, like Getty, and um, and away they went. The you know the, the smaller yeah. niche people um, became uh, part of the larger machine. You know, I, I like I said, I was part of a very small agency, Fundamental Photographs, which. Uh, to their credit, kept a 50-50 share with their photographers all the way through. Wow, that's really good. It never, yeah, it never changed. I mean, it was uh, amazing. And uh, their specialty was science. So um, I think that helped them, um, you know, to stay, To the, I'm, I'm talking like they're out of business. They're still in business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they just don't have, it's not a lot of business right now, but they're still in business. <laughs> but many of them that. have gone uh, in in, yeah. uh, in in advance of you asking about what you know we could talk about and those yeah. commonalities we had. You know, it was a trip down memory lane for for trying to go back and and look at the, the names and the people that came to mind and uh, and seeing that they either still had an online presence, got absorbed into uh, Getty uh, or um, were, were still just, just send us an email because the website's down. But those, uh, I went through my list of things in my head of mm -hmm. here, here's who I would have gone to for a standard shot of show me a, a, a racially diverse a group of children in a setting for that kind of, you know, and photo edit did that. And they're, they're largely offline. I think they probably still have a collection, but because they're, they're out there, but of all the people that all of a sudden came to mind was Woodfin Camp. Uh, this was a guy who worked for Magnum Photos and uh, had worked in their collections, uh, not as a photographer, but I think he helped make the place go. And he had his own agency and you could call him up and Woody would answer the phone and he's <laughs> close to the garment district in New York and you could hear wow. him pull open the, the file cabinet and say, right. <laughs> you're looking for a press photo or something in this time frame uh -huh. of something having to do with the Chrysler building. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll send it to you. Do you want a transparency or a glossy? You know, and uh, those people are gone, and it's it's something that yeah. uh, that we won't uh, necessarily have in that that uh, real cottage industry that's built around what people need and what they do, and and those people being able to make a decent living off of it. Absolutely, no. I mean, uh, just you saying you could hear him opening up that file cabinet. Uh, I lived in a room of file cabinets, you mm -hmm. know. Just yeah, you know, and and you you know, like you just turn around, and uh, oh yeah, this is where uh, physics is. Uh, exactly. This is where chemistry is. Yeah, but um, one of the things that happened over time was that as the larger conglomerated uh, publishing houses kept negotiating down the prices and fees from the stock agencies, of course, forcing them to sell to larger uh, organizations like Corbis and Getty. Who would pay? Uh, and and this was just my own experience. Who would offer to pay pennies on the dollar, basically, for everything you had, right? Um, With a growing they, list of uh, distribution and use as well, and uh, it was it was yes, trying to always that was the promise. Get the blood promise from a was turnip. more yeah. distribution. Yeah, yeah, yep. You know, on the other end, for for institution educational institutions, their prices kept going up for textbooks, right? The mm -hmm. so while. While, while they were paying less and less, they were charging more and more on the other side, right? And that, that has, in, in some ways, um, led to their own problems today. Uh, are you familiar with um, OER, you know, Open Educational Resources, mm -hmm. this movement in, in institutions to, to reduce the costs for students to uh, find free resources for them? And my, my college, Mercer County, is very involved in that right now and really pushing for it. The idea of OER, and of course, on the the pitfalls of that is, 
you're if you're no longer paying for content, who are the people who want to create the content mm -hmm. who also then won't get paid, right? Or will get paid very little. Right. And so are you losing expertise uh, on that side of the equation as well? Um, so we're in a really interesting point right now where we're trying to serve the students by keeping down their costs. Uh, but are we also destroying um, the idea of expertise in the industry? I, yeah, no, it's a very good point. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a broken model, isn't it? It, it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't get uh, the the money to the people who create the product who who deserve to be paid for the work that they do, and and that has a value when you're uh, on the other end um, trying to also promote something that is making education more accessible for more people because of its low or no cost, uh, which is something that I, I fully support. But it's a uh, it's something that uh, that definitely is uh, is a broken uh, business model in that sense. Yeah, when when you and I were were in the business, you know, there was also a change in education in how we were going to teach digital photography, which went from being a form of photography, film-based photography that basically never changed from, you know, 1950 on <laughs> or 60s on in terms of how you taught how to process film and print and use your camera to a software industry where it was constantly changing and you had to constantly learn new things to teach new things. Um, and we all, you know, I think when, when it started, we all started the way we would have, you know, picked up a Harnstein book to teach black and white photography. Um, you know, now we were picking up maybe, uh, Scott Kelby's books, you know, on, on Photoshop, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, there were all these great digital photography books, but they, they quickly felt outdated because of the pace of the digital, you know, photo industry. And so, you know, we were already thinking, God, we're going to make students buy, you know, this you know, brand brand new book, like almost every semester mm -hmm. to learn something new. How would we do that? And the industry kind of took care of itself in that way. And and this is something I think you could relate to is that, you know, it went it went from print to online and that made it, you know, a lot of resources uh, much easier for to help uh, students keep up with things. But then, you know, uh, organizations like uh, Adobe, companies like Adobe just put all their help videos online, you know, as part of your subscription, basically. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's free. I mean, anyone can access it. And and we all started using videos from the companies themselves. I'm speaking for myself, I think, but I think for many, many other uh, educators who didn't want to, you know, make their students buy new books every, you know, mm -hmm. every semester. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now the... Um, the technical part of teaching photography is largely done with the aid of video tutorials. And again, the, you know, the, the idea of the textbook is sort of going away, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, you're right. Um, the, the, uh, the ability of a publisher to update something with the latest link to a tutorial or here's where something can be um, uh, patched into guidance through YouTube or here's here's the link to the Adobe site that will give whatever the latest update is on the other end of it, you know, um, uh, the, the, the technical aspect of what a student may need to, to apply to. Um, but I think it goes to all that idea with what a publisher can provide doesn't come close to what the instructor will bring to the class as well. You can always teach somebody, here's how the camera works and here's how the latest camera will work and that's different than what I taught last year. But 
here's how we approach making work. Um, that's something that you can get guidance from. You can read about, you can read other people's um, essays, you can read uh, Roland Barthes, you can read all the different things, you can read Susan Sontag, and that's something that the technical aspect will never be able to to touch on. Yeah, right. There was never really... the. When it came to talking about students' work, and uh, you know, it, that was never textbook based. <laughs> really. No, yeah, no, right. <laughs> oh, there, and there have been some good, you know, there have been some good critique books and things like that, but that was never at the heart of, you know, the the most important part of the class, which was the creative part uh, of the class. Uh, but uh, you just reminded me of something. There was a period I remember when when printed media was trying to keep up in a much more digital way by including. Uh, CD-ROMs or flash drives, mm-hmm. and 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 the back page was links, right? Uh, yeah, the yeah. Website. There were yeah. there were QR codes <laughs> that were being put in the margin area, right. and uh, <laughs> and that would lead to the you know thing that was closest to what uh, they were uh, selling a, uh, a, a scanner, well, selling or including. I mean, it was bundled in with the book. Here's where you mm-hmm. can scan the side of you know the the margin yeah. uh, to to link to the real world case for how you know this company you know made made marketing you know genius and things like that. That was something that was happening at the time uh, in the late 90s or, and, and close to mm-hmm. 2000 that was being embraced, being be, being taken on by the, the publishers where I worked to find a way that they could then have a distribution channel that was now, this book is available through Amazon.com as well as where you'll get it at your college textbook store. You know, the, the college bookstore was, was king and that started to erode away. And uh, and that was a big way that publishers made their money. And with this pivoting to a digital online market uh, or eBooks, there was um, there was both excitement and calamity because they didn't have to go to press. <laughs> they didn't have to print thirty thousand books that that cost a certain amount of money. And they can now make a, a digital version of it that's available for let's say the same price as what they were mm-hmm. you know charging for the physical book, which had much more. Um, money going into the production cost of it. But you have the the blooming sense of uh, distribution that the rights and permissions for when talking about photographs and photographers who were trying to get their work into these kind of publications. It now was not just a limited print run. It was not just one language. It was not just one distribution area uh, that would drive the $150 usage fee that they wanted to you know pay, that they, the publisher, wanted to pay for. But now it's worldwide. Now it's all languages. Now it's it's you know it's global distribution in in all media now known in perpetuity, and that's <laughs> where photographers and being a photographer myself and being on kind of having a foot in both camps of wow th- how is this gonna how is this gonna be something that photographers can still make a living at do with with this erosion of where the model was based on and, and is now just thrown out the window to be something of uh, th- those rates will never go up to match what uh, the distribution and, and, right. and languages and, you know, and unlimited prints, <laughs> you know, would translate into. And, and, uh, and, and that was a big shift as well. I think that led to a lot of independent photographers working with publishers or higher ed publishers to go the way of micro stocks, micro payments and, and, and going it on their own uh, or just, seeing if somebody would take their whole collection in and say, will you go ahead and uh, manage my sales for me? Because I know I can't, you know, hit this moving target. Right. Yeah, that was actually, you bring up a good point. That was another reason why a lot of photographers went with stock agencies or agencies because they didn't want 
to do the hustle. They didn't want the business side of it. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to make the photographs and then have someone else represent them uh, to sell their work. The other thing you brought up a, a little bit ago that um, I meant to get back to is that you said uh, doing that early work with those flyers introduced you to so many things, layout, working with mm-hmm. photographers, working with clients, working with stock agencies. And, you know, it was, it was similar for me. The You know, I actually learned more... I learned things technically in photography through the stock agency that I didn't learn, in my, you know, and, and I love SVA, but in my four years at SVA, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the School of Visual Arts, there are, of course, you know, there's real world experience you don't get while you're in school. Absolutely. Yeah. But also in teaching photography and copyright and business and all that, that came, that came from the job I had in the stock photo agency. You know, uh, you brought up reproduction rights, which, you know, we don't barely even talk about anymore but you know i could i could recite you know a whole paragraph of reproduction rights right now (laughs) and how we used to word it you know with uh, the forty thousand print copies and every you know and and other media and rights reserved and everything else and 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 with this language and then how complicated that got when things started to go online you know um there was i remember the big debate was uh can you charge for a month's worth of being online or does it have to be in perpetuity? Does it, right? It was, oh, well, yeah. That and that was, was that was uh, internet 1.0 and the, you know, it, was it was a totally different world versus uh, what it is now. <laughs> so, you know, there was this idea that, oh, well, it's online and, and how long will that be there anyway? You know, and now it's there forever. <laughs> and, you know, there's uh, no you such know. thing as taking it down. Yeah. No, no, there's not at all. <laughs> I, I was, I was fortunate enough to be part of an industry roundtable uh, uh, meeting, uh, uh, in Chicago in, in 2000. And uh, there were members of uh, other publishers that were there. There was a uh, representative from uh, from Corbis uh, that was there. And there was a lot of discussion of how's somebody going to find out if you steal something off the internet because we have all these <laughs> thumbnails up and, and it's good enough for them and you know their quality standards notwithstanding. How are we going to track all this usage? Because it seemed like the internet was the wild, wild west. And, uh, yeah. uh, and it got into steganography, which is this hidden writing kind of thing that's metadata basically that's encoded in an image and, and how the, the anti-piracy groups that can uh, at these different agencies can contract that. In a further uh, position that I had at my uh, publishing company, uh, I was in the group where that was part of the, uh, the aspect of what they did. Mm. I, I was overseeing copyright registration and the other uh, arm of the person who was my supervisor also did piracy takedowns and they would find uh, illegal copies of their of, of our corporation's textbooks uh, posted online for free download, you know, and 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 that was a big aspect of where it is now. Not only just how is somebody going to make a living from uh, fair use that is is above board versus yeah. losing it to um, anybody who just feels like they can take it. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, uh, coming from print where you would charge for quarter page, half page full page, full bleed, the whole thing, mm-hmm. to uh, thumbnail and, uh, you know, 2,000 pixels wide. How do you charge for all of that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, it was. It was really interesting to um, have been 
at that, you know, working at that time, trying to figure all that out. It's it's good in, in how I think uh, where uh, I don't know if you find this with your students now or, or in um, in what I do with talking with people that come from a variety of range of ages uh, and experience. I can talk to somebody who is uh, is a veteran photographer and and has been shooting for 50 years and we can speak the same language. We both had a rotary phone that was mounted on the wall in the kitchen. <laughs> We're do, and you and I are doing this, this uh, recording now through three different devices across the internet with no wires. And we live in that world too. So we have this bridge over the digital and analog world that can, that can lend so much more appreciation and, and knowledge and, and uh, be able to transfer that to exactly the type of things you're talking about where something is reliant uh, a whole industry is built around how big is an image going to be printed on a piece of paper and distributed how many times to how many hits how many you know how many how long is the stream going to be up you know, what's the revenue that's tied into sponsorship that is on uh, you know a certain uh, site and and what's that worth um, and being able to talk to the people who are in their 20s now and have no uh, a recollection of, of what that life was like um, and, and being able to know that and, and write to it and talk, and talk to that aspect of it uh, and, and, and vice versa um, yeah. is something that I think a lot of um, writers, uh, photographers, artists, educators have as a, as a really good uh, asset for themselves. And, and actually getting back to, to your writing, did you have that transition at all when you started writing about photography or was it always already fully online, fully uh, globally reachable? By the time I started writing, it was it was full on. Yeah, globally reachable. There, there was there was no um, paper uh, version of, of my writing career. <laughs> um, it's all been within the last uh, six, seven, eight years. Um, mm -hmm. So so it's all been online publishing. It's all been um, taking what I know about optimizing uh, images for, for, for web use and, and, and how big it has to be. And, and, um, and of course, always giving credit to who I'm writing and making sure that that copyright mark is there with their name and what project it's from. Uh, get saying uh, when it comes through uh, a publisher, all these images are used uh, and authorized by Powerhouse Books or you know, through Mac or whatever, you know, right, right. whatever person I'm dealing with and working with, whether it's directly through the artist themselves or through um, someone who is trying to get that work out to, to a broader audience. I always want to make sure that that recognition and that acknowledgement for whose work this is, uh, is is right up front. It's not mine, and it's it is used through the authorization of other people. People who don't understand how that works will, at the very least, be given that there's a credit line. That that's an important part of what I think uh, any student or any person starting out in their career should know is that your work has value, not only because what you want to say and put out into the world, but if somebody else wants to use it, it has a value, and uh, it should be something that you consider and not just easily say, I'm going to give this away just for the exposure. I'm going to give this away just so I can put it out in front of more people's eyeballs. Because, you know, a couple years down the road, once that file is out there, once that image is being used by somebody else with the caveat of, sure, I'll do it for free now, could end up in another publication. They could use it for their own marketing purposes. They're, you know, they're going to earn money based on something else that comes in by using their image. And, and you've then lost any chance of of earning revenue from something that you've made. And that's that's getting to a business aspect of something that's really kind of, you know, the arts are so free form and everybody wants to have their voice and speak. But um, I think the consideration should also be there for people who, who continue on to do something seriously that um, 
they should consult somebody who knows about uh, copyright law. Um, look it up and find out what your, your rights are and what you're able to, uh, to protect your work for and, and earn money from. And don't be afraid to say no. Yeah, the, that's, that's one of the um, most difficult uh, things to fig- for students to figure out and, and to teach is what you should charge how you should charge, you know, is, is, is it family? Is it friends? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, and early on it makes sense to build up your portfolio. Uh, and and I always say that doesn't mean do anything for free, but it means, you know, you, you can be pretty reasonable when you need something for your portfolio, things like that. But, um, that also comes from this sort of transition from film, uh, and print to digital and online because, you know, early on, with the internet, of course, we had Napster, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and a lot, of, I remember a period of time, students who were from that generation where they were downloading, stealing music <laughs> from <laughs> all over, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, the, the idea of posting something online could be valuable and you could get paid for it was not at all in their, their mind space. You know, there was not something they, they were thinking about. And so that, that affected, you know, how they were thinking about their own work. But then, you know, when it comes time to actually do a job, you know, it's not the same thing. And you need to think about how someone's going to use something. What are they going to ask you for after you're done? Prints? Is it a lot of editing? Is it, uh, are you going to hand over your raw files? I mean, conversations like that. Uh, sure. Well, and I mean, you know, uh, even someone's Instagram feed, you know, is is ubiquitous. It, it is everywhere. And someone could take a screen capture of anything that you've got. And photographers still talk back and forth uh, in, uh, in discussions about to, whether to watermark their images or not. Um, you know, does it, is it a hindrance to someone who wants to appreciate it? Uh, is it something that still protects their work? in the sense of it still has to get cleaned up if somebody wants to really steal it. And so why make it easy for them? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's something that lives on. And that's, that's been there for, for decades of, of, you know, watermarking images and, and protecting them that way. Yep. I personally hate looking at people's watermarks, but I understand why, why yeah, they might want to do here. it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I do the same thing, especially uh, if it, it comes from uh, I need to get some work from from somebody uh, for for a review uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and or a feature. And um, it's uh, it needs to be good when you you know reproduce it. And so if you've, you've got something, you have to go past uh, getting watermarked images or, or not watermarked images. I don't like looking at them with the marks on them just to, to fully appreciate what the original intent of the image was. But but I understand yeah. uh, going both ways. You know, I, I meant to ask you in terms of, of the interviews you do and the reviews you do, do you, do you have a, a particular interest, a particular kind of work that you sort of lean towards? As far as a genre of photography or, or a style, it's, it's anything's up for grabs. Um, I always like to say I'd like to address meaningful work. And that can be something that I'm completely not comfortable with. But if I see, and, and, you know, it's, it's my own style of shooting is rather um, uh, straightforward. Um, it, it's not manipulated. It's not uh, something that's, uh, you know, non-camera based, uh, you know, visual work. But, uh, but I've written about work like that because something speaks to the viewer about it. If I had something that I would say, you know, where do I always like to help champion somebody? It's underrepresented uh, people uh, in photography uh, too long and for too many years. It's been a white male dominated centric kind of environment. So whenever I have a chance to find that nice mix between someone's making some very meaningful work, they have something very powerful to share and they're, they're producing it. Um, in a book or or their work is something that 
uh, for example, through F-Stop Magazine, we want to feature as someone who's with the, the exhibition that, we've, uh, that we're uh, doing for that, that, that month's issue. I would love to be able to help anybody who's um, women photographers, black indigenous people of color, queer trans community, people who have every right to say what they want to say and have as many people hear it uh, as I think can be reached. Um, because meaningful work should be should be heard. It, sh it should be shared. Um, it, you want to have that sense of community that has a wide range and diverse range of voices in it. And that's where I come from. So if it falls into something that is meaningful, and if it's a bonus, if it's somebody that I can help reach a wider audience that traditionally they would never have reached, then I'm all in. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your your work a little bit there as being um, sort of straight photography, what we would traditionally call straight photography, right? Mm -hmm. Your your latest project, uh, I think you call New Reality. Yeah, that's a pandemic project. That was that was born from uh, from what a lot of people experienced over the last year, uh, and being uh, in a situation with a pandemic of whether you want to call it a lockdown or whether you've got you know restrictions on where people were safely, you know, told they, they should stay at home as much as possible. A lot of the time that I spent was at home. It was there. Our our business was uh, closed, and and uh, we had a very different approach on on life and and what that meant and so that that exploration of just finding out what the new sense of uh, idea for what what's meaningful in your own in my own life which is what I was exploring uh, ideas of sustainability of, of, of practicality of, of meaningfulness of the things that um, that are very close to where I just physically was over the last year yeah. and, and what the, what those things then had in a new context. That's what um, I, w I was looking at the work. That's what it feels like, right? Like it's it's your space, and mm -hmm. the images online are square. Um, is that is, is that the actual format of the images? Um, in large part, yes. Uh, I've, ever since uh, ever since studying photography in college and and getting to use a. Uh, uh, twin lens reflex camera uh, shooting through a Yoshika mat or a, or a, um, a Roloflex, that kind of deal. I was just always drawn to the square image. Um, and that came from even before, you know, the advent of, of Instagram and, oh, this new square image, you know, kind of format. <laughs> um, it's just got this great balance and a great feel to it. There's a good orientation for whatever image, you know, says what you want it to in the end. Um, but I've I've always gravitated toward uh, toward square. But uh, are these crop digital now, or are you um, still? Yeah, well, they're filmed? either shot through um, shot through an iPhone uh, or shot through. Um, oh, okay. I had a had a, a Nikon digital SLR for a while, so those would have been cropped. But most of it was shot through mobile, uh, you know, just right off the iPhone. Uh, I've got a Fujifilm camera now that I've, I've got the ability to just shoot natively square, and I love it. So that that's fantastic. So I think that that format, staying with the what you know traditionally we would have called the six by six mm -hmm. uh, square format, there's also something about that that makes it. I, I don't even know the word I'm trying. Not claustrophobic, but just um, you know when you're thinking about the pandemic and you're thinking about the kind of isolation we felt and the the sort of routine of where we could go and feel safe to go or where we had to go. There's something about the, that, that tighter format that feels like we're looking through someone's eyes, right? Like we're, mm -hmm. we have this very sort of uh, much more narrow cone of vision. 
there's that sense of isolating the object or the view that you're looking at that in that mm -hmm. square format lends itself easily to uh, and to draw a parallel then to that's it's the it's that shared isolation that so many people felt in the pandemic of we're all in this together alone we're, right. we're staying at home together alone uh, and and what that means then um, uh, you know I, I was not alone alone uh, my wife and my family you know we, we were spending time together and uh, spending time in a different way that we had you know never really experienced before uh, the kids uh, in, had online learning that was a whole new you know world of, of how they had to navigate that and um, so there was this sense of um, what I've seen in a lot of other people's work uh, another exhibition that uh, that I wrote a uh, intro for uh, for the work that was uh, being shown in Italy was that uh, that staying home uh, together aspect and and seeing that same kind of theme or those tropes that that everyone in a global sense was was sharing and how to then find a way to express that and th that was and my work in the new reality kind of series that I was shooting is my take on it do you now see yourself or do you do you foresee writing about and reviewing quite a bit of pandemic work in the next year or so. <laughs> I'm sure that that'll be there. I'm sure that there will be a, a lot of that that comes from it and and maybe in a surprising way. Uh, and I, I have to wonder if that's something that when people given the time, forced or otherwise, to live more introspectively uh, or more directly with what they're doing and not be as distracted by uh, the things that are there as, as a common comfort to be distracted by, you have to drive to work, you have to get ready, you have to go to the grocery, um, those kind of things. When you weren't doing those things, did you notice how the sun bounced off the floor in the kitchen and, and, and lit up the side of, you know, and you were never really looking at it at 2.30 in the yeah. afternoon before, you know, even that uh, expression of what it's like to live in a space with a different reality uh, is something that hopefully, um, whether it's something uh, somebody turns inward and does uh, and expresses in a photographic project uh, or, or literally, I, I can't wait to see what, what more work comes out of this. It's, it's all going to be good. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of balancing home and work inside the home changed a lot of people's perspectives about you know, the, what their home was, what it meant, all those things. You know, in, in the history of photography, after traumatic experiences, you know, there's always been this uh, effect on art typically where there is that idea of, of introspection and looking inwards, but, but also a, a movement towards things that are maybe more abstract, things that are more surreal, the idea of, of rejecting the reality that you just experienced, mm -hmm. right? Sure. As, even as a form of protest. Post-war, uh, post-World War I uh, painting uh, became, uh, you know, uh, leaning towards so much more abstraction and, and things that, uh, that was not there before in a, in a pictorial sense. And yeah, I, I totally understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, and I found uh, post 9-11 that there was a, a real kind of darkness to a lot of my students' work. And that abstraction came back too. I mean, um, I had students who were constantly doing... Uh, more kind of motion photography where everything was just blurry and everything was just moving. And um, there was a lot more of that um, in your bedroom kind of diaristic photography uh, that I was finding uh, as well. And, and that's something I, I imagine we'll see more of, we'll see this reaction, even if it's not uh, directly pandemic photography, it's, I think it's going to be psychologically, you know, th what the effect of the pandemic will be in the work. Uh, and, and across different uh, d 
different uh, mediums. I mean, you know, the mm-hmm. arts in general. Uh, the, I, I've, I've written, or I, I fully believe that the uh, the role of an artist is is not to explain or um, or rationalize out what happens, especially since we're talking about trauma. But the, rather, the role of an artist should be to respond. They're exploring ideas. They're exploring feelings, and and by responding through whatever their um, their medium is, if it's photographic. Uh, work if it's video, if it's dance, if it's if it's a composer coming up with something, then you find what's meaningful to you in the arts, and and, and if it's something that you're doing and making, um, you find what you um, find your thing and keep doing it, and and the, and the response of artists in light of trauma or or this pandemic or anything that, that happens along the way uh, should be should be something of a value that uh, that we pay special attention to. So um, what's coming up for you? Uh, what are you writing about? What are you working on? Uh, I have a constant flow of books that come in from people who uh, submit. Um, uh, there's uh, there's uh, probably a half dozen books that I've got um, on <laughs> on the bookshelf or on the side. <laughs> um, it's 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 nice how some things organically lead from from one thing to the other. Uh, early on in the conversation, you said uh, there were there were ties that, uh, that we discovered uh, together. There's there's been ties through uh, SVA. Uh, in writing a book, Kathy Shore's book, Shot, led to writing uh, a, a book that Charles Traub wrote and said, hey, I'd like you to, <laughs> to, you know, and so I, you know, I got a package from him. Uh, I've worked with uh, Nico Caliotis. Uh, That's right. Um, at, on his book, America in a Trance. And there's all these little, I could have a, a big board with all the red string, you know, divide, connecting all these things. Uh, and he <laughs> and Joaf uh, Friedlander and Dana Sterling. Yep. Did the Rust Belt Biennial and uh, and Wabneb Magazine? I you know helped support them with that and and uh, and get the word out for that. Uh, and now here we've got this connection. But we have overlapped so many times. <laughs> There's a lot of string connecting all those dots, that, that kind of thing. Um, it's so those kind of things lead to something that can come out of the left field. And that's uh, that apart from the the normal kind of flow of uh, publishers or artists who who approach F Stop and say we've got a project, would you like to promote it? It's coming out this time. We've got a review copy. Would you like to you know do an interview? That kind of thing. Um, and, and there's always F Stop magazine publishes every other month, and it's based on a theme. Uh, we have featured artists that are part of that, uh, and when we're able to include interviews with uh, the people that are chosen as, as featured artists, that provides another opportunity for me to uh, work directly with people who may not have a book or a project or something in that sense, but but have something that we've identified uh, strongly fits uh, fits the theme for the exhibition. So that's always changing, and that's always nice because it's something it's, it's it can always lead to something new and fresh. So um, I've I've always got a fountain <laughs> of of things to be able to to get to and uh the rest of my life uh tries to to catch up and 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 create the space to be able to sit down and uh and respond to it uh in in writing and so so there's a whole host of things yeah that's um that's fantastic and uh did i miss anything else no, I think uh, we've covered a lot of the things uh, that we talked about um, with the work. Yeah. I, it's, uh, I've tried to start uh, speaking on the topic of writing on photography uh, and had been invited to speak uh, with, a, with a photo group that was in Wales, uh, Photon Wales. Um, I'm trying to uh, work that out with, uh, with my alma mater uh, for coming up in the fall or, or next year as well. So I've had to do these a lot are, of these thinking panels, about panels, like panels and lectures. It'd be like a panel, yeah. It'd be like a panel okay, discussion yeah. or just a, a lecture presentation of, of, of a, like a guest uh, guest speaker kind of thing. After I had, had done uh, that and uh, 
presentation with the the group in Wales, I've, I realized I've got uh, I've, I've got a presentation. I've got something that I can speak to that draws from what I've done. And, and uh, again, kind of coming back to that theme of building a sense of community and, and helping others um, and, and trying to just kind of reinforce that idea of whether you're writing something, whether you're creating visual work, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to find out uh, what's meaningful to you. Stay curious and find your thing and keep doing it. It's not the same for everyone. Some people are facilitators, some people are educators, some people are creators, and some people are a mix of all of those things. And it's all valuable. It's all something that I know for myself, if I'd heard that early in my career, uh, it, um, it may have made a, a, a huge difference. I don't know. Um, but um, but that, that is something valuable that I've found that uh, in speaking with other people, they've responded really well to. And, um, and I hope that I have the opportunity to do more of that. That's a great place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. My yeah. pleasure. I know this was a... Uh... This conversation about education and textbooks and everything wasn't ex exactly what your where your head is right now, but I appreciate you uh, <laughs> speaking with me about it. <laughs> well, it's it's something I know with the um, with the photo industry uh, and the textbook industry as it was when I started out. A lot of it was very hands on, and I was working with other researchers who performed work. I was working directly with photographers who would shoot on spec, and by the end of my career in higher ed publishing, I saw a change of that role where I was a photo manager to being this broader project manager. People I knew who were doing that same type of work that was, you know, 12, almost 15 years later were project managers and they were dealing with bulk rates. They were dealing with preferred vendors. They were dealing with um, getting things in and making sure the spreadsheet was all filled in. And they weren't doing that interpersonal aspect of calling up somebody hearing the drawer open up in the background and knowing that you're working with someone who has a skill and, uh, and a talent for making something work and effectively trying to help further educate people or communicate ideas through visuals. Uh, that's this overarching theme that I think I've had in, in my career, mm -hmm. in my writing, or in, in working with the publishing industry or otherwise. It's helping to foster that that expansion or expression and transmission of ideas through the visual uh, image and, and how well that can be used to, uh, to teach as, as well as, um, as any written material could. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's the, the beauty of being able to do these interviews, uh, whether written or, or podcast, is you, you do get um, all of that. You get to engage and, and uh, find the, the person <laughs> behind the work. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Michael, my pleasure. Thanks again for asking. It was, a, it was a complete joy to do. Oh, thanks. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.